Welcome to From Embers to Excellence, a podcast that explores the many facets of leadership from the perspectives of some amazing people. We discuss the triumphs and failures that have shaped our lives and our leadership philosophies. It isn't whether we fail that defines us, but when we do fail, how do we respond? Leaders dust off the ashes and use their failures as fuel to work harder and as lessons to come back wiser and stronger, more resilient, more determined, and more committed to excellence. And now, here is your host, Dave Hollenbach. You might recognize today's guest as Michael Yetter. He was my guest for the very first episode of this podcast. He is a really good friend of mine. He's a captain with Miami-Dade Fire Rescue. He's been with Miami-Dade for the past 22 years. He's also a veteran of the United States Army and Army National Guard. He began his career with Miami-Dade back in 1998. Uh, he worked his way up through the ranks, becoming a very well-respected fire officer and paramedic. He's served in some of the busiest stations within Dade County. He's also served in leadership positions on uh, Miami-Dade's USAR team, Task Force One, which is a state and federal asset. He currently serves as the officer in charge for recruit training. He's helped me grow as a leader. He has definitely dedicated his time and efforts towards developing a lot of Miami-Dade's people and people just in the fire service that he's come in contact with. We're gonna do something a little bit different today. This is kind of a little free-flowing conversation. And I'm just gonna kind of see where it goes. One thing that I did want to talk about, I'm thinking that you may be familiar with it, but it's the Johari window. Are you familiar with that? I don't think that I am. Johari window. The, yeah, the Johari window is a process used to improve your situational awareness. So there's four windows in the Johari window. One is where there's all of the known aspects of the situation or uh, relationship, whatever, all the knowns. Right. There, and then there's the unknowns. You don't know what you don't know. Then there's the, the things about yourself that you're blind to, but everybody else around you can see clearly. You mm -hmm. know, maybe your faults or your strengths, stuff that you just don't uh, grasp fully yourself. And they refer to it as a, as a blind spot. And then um, there's, so that's three aspects of it. Well, I'll read what they've got here. It's the, the first pane in the window is referred to as uh, open or arena. This quadrant represents the actions, behaviors, and information that are known to the individual and those around them. Then there's the second quadrant is referred to as the blind spot. Information in this area is particularly useful in 360 degree reviews for personal and professional development. Actions and behaviors in the blind area are known to others, but the individual is not aware of them. And it can be positive or negative. It could be hidden strengths or areas for improvement. And then there's the hidden. The third pane is referred to as hidden or facade. This information is known to the individual, but not known to anyone else. 
This may consist of private information, feelings, ambitions, dreams, opinions that they, they withhold from the group out of fear of negative reaction. And then there's the unknown. The last window is just known as the unknown. It's uh, information, skills, behaviors, etc., that are unknown to the individual and to others. So this includes subconscious information that no one is aware of, such as early childhood memories, undiscovered talents, etc. It plays a role in the decision-making process as well. When, especially in high-stress environments, where just say a, a fire incident, for example. When you arrive on scene, you're bringing with you all of those past experiences. If you're the first arriving officer on scene, you're going to establish command and you're going to base your actions and the direction that you give to your crew. You're going to base that on your past experiences and the knowledge that you have from training and, and previous calls that are similar in nature. And then you'll direct your crew you're, you'll communicate to them what you want them to accomplish. And as they implement those directives, you're looking for a change in conditions, whether it's good or bad. And once you recognize the change in conditions, then it, you update your situational awareness and adjust the directions that you give. Right. And, it, and it just continues. It's that, that cycle, that decision-making cycle. Right. I, it, I'm either having a really uh, strong case of deja vu right now um, because of the way that um, you're you're explaining it, or it's because um, I'm trying to think of which book uh, it was uh, Leadership Lessons um, by uh, Dr. Kimberly Allen, or if it was Left at Bang, uh, which was that's a book about situational awareness, or maybe if it was somewhere else, or like I said, deja vu. The the term I would have. Uh, I wouldn't have guessed it on a multiple uh, choice test, but conceptually, the the way that um, yeah that the the thought process behind our decision making or whatnot, and um, you know how we get to that that at least that conclusion, and then the based on that the um, what we anticipate to happen as a result because our we're being, I guess we're preloaded with that information, and that's what's going to lead us to make those decisions. You know, so and it's operates in the subconscious. So, you know, why do you go left versus right? You know, when you don't have any other information, it's you know, in the immediate. With right. so, um, what was the name of it again? The Johari window. Johari window, yeah. So, I'll, um, what you call it? I'm uh, I'm preparing uh, perfect timing because I'm preparing to teach um, some of our new lieutenants. Uh, I'll be doing leadership um, with them for the department's uh, officer development program. So that's a that's a key thing that goes in um, that would be able to to share with them as far as that decision making. You know, it's like well, sometimes if you ask somebody, you know, why did you make that decision, and they don't really consciously know, and they say, I don't know, they may not be lying. You know, even though if there is a subconscious reasoning, but they're just not aware of it yet. I could think of you know those countless examples of showing up on a scene and just being it's the atypical one, and choosing to to go a certain route or um or make a certain sequence of uh decisions in the moment i'm just operating on autopilot and then you know uh retrospect because as soon as the call finishes 
I'm playing rewind in my head and I'm, I'm critiquing every aspect of at least my performance. You know, did I get it right? Did I suck? What the, was there anything that, uh, that could have been improved or, or anything? Uh, I wish I had that, uh, that back. And it's like a, it's a guilty pleasure because I actively try to seek feedback and usually I'll get to, oh yeah, you did a good job. And I'm like, no, I'm, I'm not content with a good job. I mean, it's um, fire goes out and the person goes to, to the hospital. Um, that's going to happen regardless. You know, uh, all the fires go out. The fire service has an impeccable fire, you know, record. We're undefeated. That doesn't mean that we did things as efficiently as possible. If that person got to the hospital an hour when they could have been there in 20 minutes, that, you know, that, to me, that's significant. So what could I, you know, did I do it right? Or did, is there a thing that I could have uh, improved upon? Usually, no matter what I, uh, basically, I'm just looking for validation of the things that I already have going on quietly in my head. And, and occasionally, I'll get the, um, oh, no, well, you, you didn't do this. And I'm like, man, that one slipped right by me. Of course, that goes with, you know, separate subject as far as having that close inner circle of people that, um, that you trust and they trust you and having that dialogue to where you know that you're going to get that honest feedback. And that's the only way we're going to grow anyways, because, you know, rarely make the same mistake twice. I'm still going to make it the first time, unfortunately, for some stuff. I don't know if you had a, an opportunity to look at the materials that I have available on hollenbachleadership.com. I'm going to pull it up because you were, you were mentioning that you had, what was it? The company officers Academy? Officer development program. Officer development program. I have on there the Hollenbach Leadership's 360-degree peer evaluation. Mm -hmm. It's free. I developed it off of uh, the Big 12, which, you know, back in 2004, United States Army Training and Doctrine Command assigned this study to the U.S. Army War College. And what they did was they, um, they, they took advantage of the, the recent experiences within four Army divisions that had just returned home from like 12 to 15 months of service over in <clears throat> Iraq uh, during Operation Iraqi Freedom. They interviewed 77 officers and they, they had identified 29 important behaviors that they used in this evaluation, right? Those 29 leadership behaviors, when they went through with all these behaviors with the 77 officers, what they identified was the top 12 behaviors that all of these officers said, you know, leaders with these behaviors, I'm more likely to follow them and have respect for them over the other ones, right? So then based on that, they and they called that the big 12. Then the top eight selected as most differentiating between good and poor leaders are the Campbell leadership descriptors that were um, most relevant to the army officers involved. So what I did was I set up this, um, well, it's, it's a peer evaluation. The, mm -hmm. person, the person being evaluated writes their name on the top of the, the page and everybody on the crew has the same page. They write their name at the top. Then everybody trades them, right? Even the officer on the crew is evaluated by the crew. It's meant to be a tool for personal growth. Mm -hmm. It's not meant to make somebody feel bad about themselves and it's anonymous 
So the the crew members don't write their name in the columns where they're actually scoring. Well, right? it's not that anonymous. You get a you get a one in three or <laughs> one in four chance. But no, but I know what you uh, I know what you mean because there's certain things that, uh, especially if it's a um, needs uh, of of improvement, and not in a below satisfactory, but just hey, maybe you should work on this skill um, or things that could be maybe done differently. You know, when you're being rated on, you it's I lost my train of thought. I blame the COVID. Sorry about that. <laughs> I know. The, the app that I have going on in the back of my head, there's actually two or three right now. One of them is, is the Big 12. Absolutely remember that because that was a part of the uh, the leadership initiative class that I taught at our uh, at our expo. We'd spoke about it. You made me aware of it. And, and that was that was part of the presentation because there was, um, as a matter of fact, both of our names were, were on that, you know, and the intro to it was is that this class was developed by yourself, you know, um, by yourself and, uh, and I. Uh, as a means to, you know, uh, initiate, you know, leadership, you know, in the fire service. I still have that, you know, that PowerPoint because actually when I got done presenting it to the e-staff to get the stamp of approval, um, the training division chief at the time approached me and was like, is there any way that I can get that information, you know, from you? And I was like, I'll give you the PowerPoint, you know, and it has the notes written in the bottom so you know where it's coming from. You know, that was another reason why it was, I wanted both of our names on it because it was a result of both of our conversations and feedback, you know, and feeding off each other, you know, for however many years it was that's, you know, that we've been trying to get this off the, off the ground. When you mentioned that, that was like, man, that, that's a good memory right there because that was the foundation for what's the, um, you know, this that, that you're doing and, um, and that what I'm still trying to do, you know, with the, now with the officer development program, it's nice to see that it's come full circle in that sense, you know. So that peer evaluation, whenever I was teaching the Lieutenant's Academy or the Captain's Academy or mm -hmm. the Battalion Chief's Academy, yeah. I would use that. And, you know, typically it's like a, a two-week academy. Yeah. You give it in the beginning and then you give it in the end so that you can kind of see a growth or just the fact that you might not know the other people in that group through that training you get to know one another and you communicate more yeah one of the biggest things with leadership is effective communication actually having self-awareness so that when you're communicating, you know that you're being understood the way you're intending to be understood. Yes. Yeah. Um, you know, it's a part of the, there's a, there's that element of the communication model that fall, you know, uh, whereas it uh, is a huge part of that, of that, uh, of, of communicating a leader's intent, you know, or, you know, are you understanding the words coming out of my mouth when the, um, and I'm, and I'm thinking right now um, of one of my instructors, you know, kind of like frustrated with, with the recruits because he was given a set of uh, directions, you know, and he was like, I said it pretty clearly <coughs> and concisely. And uh, they were doing roof ops. So basically he was, they had pointed out where the rafters were, you know, on the prop. They marked it with a red line. Don't cut the red line. What did they do? Cut right through it, cutting through the rafter. And so, 
it kind of um they cut a little bit too deep into it obviously so now they have to swap not only swap out the plywood but now they got to swap, swap out the um the the two by four that, that we use to um that sets on top of the actual rafter uh for just that that case but it was like he goes i don't I don't, uh, I don't get it. I mean, I said it so clearly and I was like, yeah, but did you ask them if they understood, you know, because it's, it's hot, um, which it was very hot and um, humid today, um, which it always is for our roof ops. It's usually those three days are the, um, are the hottest days of the year, regardless of month, you know, um, uh, it's like a conspiracy and stuff, but um you know, it's their eyes are, are wide open, you know, um, but it's like, are, are they understanding what you're saying? You know, did you, I was like, did you have them repeat it to you, what you just said? You know, he's like, no, I'm like, it seems like it's simple and it's common sense, but it may not be because it's, you know, it's, uh, we take for granted that we know what's going on in our head, you know, and he did, if he said it the way that he told me, yes. He did say it clear and concisely, but I'm also not in the sun with my gear on, you know, under duress, if you will, you know, so where all I probably heard was, you know, uh, the teacher from, um, you know, uh, Peanuts cartoons, you know, and they're like, okay, you know, cut right through it. Cut the red line. <laughs> yes. <laughs> I go back to all of the, the conversations that we've had over the years and just how far you and I both have come in our understanding of leadership, how we've, how we've taught others and how we've actually influenced others to take leadership roles when they were not inclined to, you know? One of the things that, and this might not even tie in at all, but you know, early on in our friendship, you had a lot of army stories because I don't think you had been out of the army for, for too long yeah, when just, you and I met. Yeah. I just got out of active duty, um, maybe less than a year before then did the fire Academy and then yeah, went to EMT school and then we met up at Cheers in Sanford. Yeah. You know. So tell me about your time in the army, like where you were stationed and you know, what kind of training you did, what, what's the, your most memorable part of your service in the army there was the um what i like to call the million dollar experience i wouldn't pay a dime for which was the 14 months that i was stationed in korea um, camp hobi uh south korea as a um as a member of the uh initially it was the first battalion fifth infantry uh, mechanized and then uh they ended up reflagging uh so they just you know, basically changed the name of the organization i became um you know uh, first of the ninth uh or First uh, Battalion, Ninth Infantry, uh, also known as the Manchus, and at the time I was just a, I was an eighty-eight Mike. I was a truck driver, and I was a, you know in the headquarters um, company, providing logistical support. You know, beans and bullets. Being a part of the first of the fifth, uh, there wasn't a lot of fanfare. You know, with it, it's just another unit. But I remember at the reflagging ceremony um, when we officially became the Ninth Infantry you know, and that they were also known as the Manchus, what I really thought was cool. And again, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm a history geek and I, and I like buy-in. So, you know, anybody could be assigned to the first, uh, you know, uh, to the ninth infantry regiment, but you're not a Manchu until you do the forced road march for us. And, um, you know, as a part of that, I guess, uh, initiation, 
we uh, had to do a, it was supposed to be a 25 mile road march. I think somebody kind of dog-legged uh, a little bit and added some, so it was 27 miles. And, but it wasn't in a straight line. It's not, Korea is 97% mountains. You know, we were, it was just all up and down. Um, and then, you know, I always have to say it, um, you know, my family laughs because it's like back in my day, you know, but it was 27 miles up and down, you know, uh, mountains, including the, the fourth highest um, point in South Korea, which is uh, it's a radio tower, uh, or it's a mountain, Casey, um, Three Niner, KC Four Niner, Four Niner, uh, where they have a radio tower for the communications and stuff. And the only thing that sucks more than walking up that hill is walking down, because it's a bunch of gravel and you lose your footing and bust your ass and stuff. What was really cool about that experience was a couple of things. Uh, was I wasn't, I was actually uh, my platoon leader was like, "Hey, yeah, you don't have to do this. Um, this is this is an infantry thing." like really just kind of like giving me an out because um, since I was his driver, um, he was going to do the, the road march, um, but he wanted um, somebody to either drive the Humvee to pick up any stragglers or just equipment and stuff like that. So since the Humvee is, has my name on it, he's like, you can drive the Humvee. And I was like, and then I'm thinking in my mind, the guys in my platoon, which we were very tight um, the support platoon and the scout platoon, our barracks were right next to each other. And we were tight and it was like, that, that was the first time in my life that I really experienced true brotherhood. You know, that you never saw one person go by themselves anywhere. You know, it was where one went, the whole gaggle, you know, went with them. So if we would get weekend passes and go down to Seoul, it was all of us, you know, upwards of, um, you know, 20 to 30 guys that we just, we all got in country within a couple months of each other instant gel was like, you know, lightning in a bottle. If I could remember most of the times, I'd say it was pretty good, but it was, it was always a good thing. You know, we all always had each other's back. You know, my thing was, if my guys are doing it, um, there's no way that I'm not doing it. Some people were like, you know, um, uh, not, you know, why would you want to, you know, walk this thing? It's going to be all, you know, all day, whatever. I was like, that seemed like a good idea at the time. You know, I just wanted to be part of that experience because I already could anticipate what it was going to be at the end. There's something to be said when, you know, we embrace the suck. It may suck going through it, but that bond that you have afterwards is is priceless. I ended up getting somebody else who had no desire, had no, you know, cares in the world. They didn't um, care about getting a belt buckle at the end because that was the 9th Infantry um, uh, Regiment belt buckles, one of the few um, that are actually authorized to wear with your um, battle dress uniform. That was another, you know, cool thing. And it's, you know, simple things, but it's not, it's not the trivial item in itself. It's the meaning behind it. To the point where when we finished the, uh, the Manchu march, I was a road guard for it. So I was in front the, the entire time. As we came towards the end of it, um, my partner and I, that uh, we had to block traffic so the whole, um, you know, both columns and the, and the element can you know, go past us. So now we've led this thing for 26.9 miles, you know, and now all of these guys are walking past us. And I was like, there's no way, you know? So I look at him and we're like, you know, and he's like, hey, we started in front, we finish in front. So we freaking... And I don't know, I guess it's it's great to be, you know, 19, 20 years old and not knowing any better and being indifferent to pain. We did a modified sprint, you know, because we're in full battle gear. 
you know, all the way to the front of the, um, the column so we could finish in front, you know, I, with maybe a healthy pride until I realized that I think I, you know, strained my groin in the process. Still worth it though. And it was awesome. And that, that moment was only ellipsed by getting the history of the 9th Infantry Regiment, because now we just shared in this experience. And now the, the history of the regiment dating back to the, was it 1900s during the Boxer Rebellion, you know, where the man, where the 9th Infantry Regiment was tasked with um, going to Tietzen, China. They marched however many miles. And then upon getting to the, the, the town gates, started engaging in combat. Colonel Liscom was the, uh, was the regimental commander. As they were engaging the enemy, the soldier that was maintaining the, uh, holding the colors, he was mortally wounded. Colonel Liscom had grabbed those colors and uh, told his men, keep up the fire as they charged forward and then he was mortally wounded. So the regiment's um, you know, motto is keep up the fire. Years later, I'm thinking, wow, 9th Infantry Regiment, I was at Station 9 for almost six years of my uh, career, you know, and then uh, the motto was keep up the fire. I worked for the fire department, you know, like trying to find all these um, associations. But the thing, though, was is what having that history, being aware of that history, it helped instill pride in the organization. And it was different because we were the same guys as we were in the 1st of the 5th. But being a part of the 9th Infantry Regiment kind of gave us a little bit of um, edge. Being down in the town of Tokari, you know, or Tongashan, you know, and you'd hear somewhere in the distance, who you with? And then, you know, you would hear all the, the 9th Infantry guys go, what, nine? And then it was just like, it was, I get the goosebumps still thinking about it. It was awesome. And I always draw that parallel to the, to the Marines. We're, you know, almost a month away from their birthday you know, on November 10th. And it's like, why do I know that? I'm an army guy. You know, I make fun of Marines every single chance that I get. And, uh, but I know, you know, when it's their birthday and I wish every Marine that I know a happy birthday on that day. Why is that? Because they're, they're so proud of their history. They identify, you know, um, with it. So even if I'm, you know, taking jabs at them, you know, it's all in love and it's out of, all out of respect. Those were, were memorable um, moments that I took with me to where wherever I'm at, I try to make sure that guys have an identity with the association that they're part of, you know, whether it is, um, you know, whatever history I could find out from the, um, the unit that we're at, like what year did it go in service? Where did it, like station nine, um, to me was, um, used to run out of a hospital called Shady Oaks, you know, back in 1949. To me, that's, you know, that, that's cool. It's relevant. Maybe not everybody gets it, but at least if they have, they have a connection with their, with the history, maybe it helps with the buy-in of things, you know, hey, we got a tradition to, um, to uphold. And if it's a new station, then you know what, we have a new tradition to, um, to start, you know, in the finest um, traditions of the, of the fire service. I mean, it was so much so like that, that was such a rewarding experience that I actually contemplated reenlisting and reclassing to go infantry, even though I was set to start the fire academy as soon as I got out. Ended up, you know, coming to my senses in the sense that I, I didn't want to forsake what I wanted most right now for what I wanted. I didn't want to forsake what I wanted um, right now for what I wanted most, and that was to be a fireman. So, you know, that led me to to get out. But the audible that I called was as I joined the National Guard and I reclassed to go infantry. So I went to infantry school and stuff. And, and that was another memorable experience because one encounters everything. Usually guys go from... They go the other way. They go from, you know, walking everywhere to, uh, to driving. Whereas I'm, I'm thinking of myself strategically and tactically, I'm a smaller target if I'm just walking, 
you know, as opposed to, um, you know, driving, you know, this big uh, truck everywhere. Cause I drove tractor trailers when I was in Fort Lewis, Washington. And then, uh, then I drove, uh, well, Hemet's at first. And then I drove a Humvee for, you know, when I was in Korea, so that was, um, it was pretty good. And the national guard experience, um, great leadership when I first got there. And then when I left, um, right around the time I got court-martialed, I realized that I was poor leadership, you know, and, um, at bay and basically, you know, I had a platoon leader that was more concerned about numbers uh, and, and, and guys being showing up to drill. And it was very black and white. And, uh, you know, and he was more concerned about that than, than what the needs of his soldiers were. I'd already moved back down to Miami uh, working for the fire department, but I still stayed in that unit in Orlando even though there was one that was five minutes from my house. But the guys that I served with in Orlando, they were they were awesome. I mean, we really built a brotherhood that was built, you know, one weekend uh, a month and two weeks out of the year. And I tried to go to the unit down. I did a couple drills with them and I just didn't like it. I didn't like it. Um, it wasn't for me. I didn't uh, assimilate well to, to them. And I felt, you know, more comfortable with the guys that I had time with because a lot of them had their ranger tabs. They were ranger battalions and, and there was still a lot to learn. Like I still had a lot to learn. I'm, by this point, I'm a team leader, but I don't really have any experience other than the, the training that we would do, you know, in the summers. So it was like, I just, you know, there was an association with it. But when I got court marshals, because I couldn't make it, I literally didn't have enough money to drive up to Orlando and get back because I had to change all four tires of my Ford Explorer. I communicated that early and I ended up, um, what you call it, um, and basically got, um, you'll be here or else. And um, I was like, I, I, I literally can't, you know, I, I don't have the money to do it. I not, didn't show up that Sunday when I knew that they were going to get back, you know, from their, um, from their training. Uh, you know, I called up, I spoke with my first sergeant. He goes, I'll take care of it. You know, where he goes, I'll talk to the old man. And, you know, I was thinking, okay, we're good. The next month that I show up, I see my name on a bulletin board. You know, there's a thing that says the following soldiers were going to be, um, you know, court-martialed in accordance with Article 31. And there, and there you go. And I was like, how'd that happen? You, you know, I was like, but I, I, I communicated, and it was like, well, you know, his response was, you weren't here. You know, and it just, it made it really easy for me to dislike him um, because he wasn't the competent. He wasn't competent in his job to begin with. And it's not me just being angry and talking back. No, you know, it's, we would do, you know, different training um, sessions. And it's like, he would do stuff like he thought he was in a movie, completely unrealistic. I ended up getting, you know, I ended up getting out um, in May of 2001. I did my eight year obligation and, um, you know, total, and we were good. And then I think they were deployed to Iraq in January of nine, uh, 2003. And he wasn't with them because he was removed from that command, you know? So it was kind of like a validation, like everybody else kind of saw what I saw. And we would talk about it as a soldier. So we had no confidence in it. Those experiences would probably be the most uh, forefront of my, in my mind, as I, as I recall. But uh, overall, um, great experience. And, you know, um, learning humility, uh, you know, as a leader, because, uh, you know, being tasked as a, as a team leader, I have, I'm in charge of three guys. And, um, you know, we do the training things. They're going to listen to me. And I'm constantly looking, 
you know, my left and right thinking, okay, I, we know, we know, we know we have to do, but if we're being, you know, pinned down by, you know, suppressive enemy fire, there's, there's movements that you could take and stuff, but there's, there's sometimes where it's, it's not, it's not like it was going to be laid out when we drew it, drew it out. So what do you guys got? And, um, and just try to, instead of be just blindly thinking, going off of what I think I should do, just having that quick little reset. This is what I'm thinking. Maybe somebody is hopefully, you know, maybe they see something that I don't. Um, and that's the biggest thing, because if we're going to fight somebody, we want to make sure that uh, we're, one, that we don't get, um, you know, lit up by our own guys. But the other part is, is maybe we're not, we're missing somebody that's on the outward flank. So if we don't take our flank wide enough, you know, we, we'd just be doing a head-on assault and then we would end up losing our pretend lives with the laser tag system that we were using. Have you had an opportunity to listen to any of the the episodes other than uh, your your own? I really didn't find the need to because I th- thought with mine that uh, after listening to that and just witnessing, you know, the excellence and awesomeness, um, there was really no need to watch any of the other ones. See, Dave, uh, the way that I see it is, is I'm the greatest, the greatest there's ever been in my awesomeness is only exceeded by my humility. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Um, I I started watching um, the second one uh, that you did. Um, I got about 20 minutes into that one. And then uh, what you call it? And then I just, I haven't had a chance to get back to the, uh, to the computer. Like this, um, computer uh, related activity is is the most that i've been on the computer since we uh since we spoke uh just been you know um, a couple weeks ago yeah trying to be more involved with the uh with the hands-on with the instructors and stuff and not really providing the hands-on but just just witnessing what it is that they um what they do because i've been confined in the the office trying to build up the I guess the administrative component to our program. And, and what I mean by that is, is that when I took over the recruit training program, I, I, I basically got, um, I got a calendar, you know, that said, this is how you, uh, this is how you uh, put together a recruit class. So there was no context to anything other than where the subjects lined up and then the approximate amount of days that you would need per, per subject. And, um, and that was for our SOP class. A month later, we were starting a minimum standards class and I got a calendar from another uh, agency on how to put that together. So that was another million dollar experience I wouldn't pay a dime for in the sense that um, I, I wouldn't want anybody to ever have to, to go through that because the amount of stress that was involved in trying to figure the stuff out on, you know, um, on the fly, or at least lean on some of the instructors that have been there for a while to try to get some type of context of how I'm supposed to put together a, a recruit training program, you know, 14 weeks for the SOPs and then for the minimum standards class and the SOPs, it's about, you know, nine months. There's a bunch of coordination that has to take it, you know, has to take it place. And I had nothing, you know, I had names, but I had no phone numbers. I didn't know who they, um, who they were, where they reported to, what their, the purpose of their visit was supposed to be. It was, um, it, oh, and I, and I was uh, deployed to the panhandle to, uh, you know, for Hurricane Michael, you know, um, and, and trying to navigate that was, I, I've been in command of some pretty intense scenes and I've never been as, as stressed out and, uh, 
and almost defeated as I was during that that process. So since then, for the last two years, everything that I do, I document, and then once I have something in place and there's something that needs to be updated, it's it's a constant uh, effort to try to stay on top of that. On top of the fact that uh, I've come to the conclusion that I am not an administrator. You know, I <laughs> I am uh, I am doing exactly the type of stuff that I swore that I never wanted to do because I just like to be on the truck, hang out with the guys, act like an adolescent, and break stuff. You know, when I, whenever I get the opportunity. You know, and this this role is is that you know having to be responsible for a program. I mean, the, the cool part is being responsible for empowering the recruits or being responsible for those who are responsible with empowering our recruits with, um, you know, the, the KSAs or knowledge school skills abilities, you know, for them to be, um, hold on a second, an asset to the department and not a liability. And that's always been my, my uh, you know, my mindset, you know, our responsibility is to train them, but our obligations to our brothers and sisters out on the, in the field with that conscious effort is, is again, I'm, I'm the water boy at the end of the day, you know, my instructors uh, whom I have the utmost trust in, they're all studs because they were all, and they're all recruited to be an instructor. You know, it's my job to, to support them. And you know, they tell me they need something, I'm going to go out and, uh, you know, and get it. That has been, that has consumed me for a while. And then now I'm just like, now I'm at the point to where Everything's pretty good, you know. Any uh, changes? I could. It's just a, a click of a mouse, a couple of types. But then, for the most part, I, I just try to go out and, you know, and be outside, you know, and wherever I could, um, you know, lend a hand out on the the drill grounds, even if it's just, you know, in the command function when they do evolutions, I'll do that. So that means that that instructor could be with their squad. You know, this is the most fun that I'm having in the last two years. You know, two plus years maybe. It's all blur at this point. Plus, I had COVID, so you know, memory's foggy. Uh, how did you uh, acquire the coronavirus? Um, I, I don't know for sure. I um, my my oldest son, he he had tested positive, but never had any symptoms. So you got to come up with a better story than that, man. Like you were volunteering with the sick COVID babies. I um I don't know how I you know how I contracted it. There's a couple of guys that I work with at the uh, at the COVID testing sites that ended up um, getting it, and we were all around the time same time frame uh, where that's plausible. I know what didn't help my case, and what you know what I think put me in the hospital, considering I have no pre-existing you know conditions, is just the fact that I was in the middle of teaching an LFTI class on March 19th at lunch. We got the, hey, uh, you're going to have to wrap this up, you know, make sure you finish your, uh, you know, meet your objectives, but um, you you need to go, you know, uh, one, we're, they're, they're taking over the auditorium where I was holding the, the class, and um, they're going to open up a call center for the Dade County residents, and then uh, for me, I was, gonna, I was tasked uh, as a logistics section chief for the fire command, and then I was also the OEM branch, because we were going to be starting up a... Um, distribution for all the medical supplies not only for you know the hospitals and nursing homes uh well i guess that was that was pretty much it but all in addition to all the different uh, county departments so whether it was the homeless trust transit and whatnot as the oam branch i actually reported to myself as a logistics section chief at some point there was talk that i would get moved up to the state um and as part of the uh, incident management team because i just did uh 
it was in that role um, for Hurricane Dorian. So it was posted up at the Orange County Convention Center uh, for about two weeks and stuff, handling logistics uh, part for all the teams that were, you know, uh, coming into the state or were staged at different um, different regions, uh, either Miami, uh, Orlando, and then uh, Jacksonville. From then till July was all blur, but I was probably working 80 to 100 hours a week, seven days, you know, uh, a week. It was, I would say it was over 100 hours a week for, you know, for the first month or so. And then I kind of just tapered off at the uh, around 80 hours a week, and I would occasionally take a day off. And I was just, I think uh, I was so run down, you know, just running on on fumes, really, um, that I, I became susceptible to, you know, not just getting sick, but getting real sick, being in um, a typical, you know, guy and a typical firefighter, uh, you know, where, you know, ah, it's not that bad. You, you know, um, in three days, uh, not being able to really take a, a breath, you know, um, my pulse ox was like between 88, 89%. My wife's freaking out and I'm like, I'm good, you know, uh, and, and I wasn't, but I was like, yeah, this will pass, you know, uh, in my mind, I'm thinking, for real, like this, this, this is, this is it, you know, like I, I'll get better and I wasn't getting better. And, um, I think, uh, you know, I, I finally agreed to, to go to the hospital, you know, just to put my wife at ease. And uh, we got a flat tire about four blocks from the hospital. I don't know if I told you this. We got a flat tire about four blocks from the hospital. It's starting to rain over, you know, and, and uh, I, I could, I mean, when I tell you that I, I could barely, I couldn't take a breath in. And every time I would try to take a, a deep breath, I would get a bronchospasm, so it would shut down. And I'm like, Ugh. so I just tried to like, you know, take little guppy breaths and stuff. So, um, but the tire needed to be changed. My wife is like, well, let me go find somebody to, to, to help us change the tire. And I was like, no, 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 I got this. In a painful process that it took me because, you know, getting out of the car to get to the trunk, I had to stop, try to catch my breath, you know, but do it just to where, again, because I couldn't take a deep breath to where, you know, short breaths, okay you know, grab the tire, set it down, you know, wait till I could uh, do it. And thankfully it's not a pouring, you know, monsoon rain, it's just a drizzle, but it's just enough to let me know that God has a sense of humor. I get over, um, I got so far as I was able to uh, loosen up the lugs and then uh, I got the, jacked up the car. And at some point when I was jacking up the car, the jack wasn't working out right. And I just, it, I was perplexed. So while I was taking my break to try to catch my breath, I'm like, it shouldn't be this hard, you know, it, it's a simple jack, you know, you just, you know, type thing. And, um, but it's not working, you know, push through it, you know, take the tire off. And when I go to put the spare on, I can't, um, car's still too low. So I, I have to jack it up more. At this point, the, the jack is, the jack must have coronavirus because it ain't operating or, at some point, I realized that I was getting hypoxic because I just I could I literally could not operate that that um, that jack. So, you know, again, being a guy and being a firefighter, you know, fireman, I'm I get my hands on my knees and trying to catch a deep breath, you know, or catch my breath. The the drizzles it's raining a little bit more. I'm like, all right, you know, he does have a sense of humor. 
there, there's a guy that's he's walking and uh, behind me on, on um, in front of this uh, Walgreens. He's like, Army, sir, do, do you need a hand? So I did what any good, you know, uh, natured uh, red blooded American would do. I looked at him dead in the eye and I'm like, no, I'm good. And I waved them off and stuff to which then I hear my wife screaming from across the parking lot, you know, did you just tell him that you were good? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Trying to catch my breath, you know, from just that acknowledgement. So she ended up finding somebody to, of course, the jack worked for him, you know, wheeled it up, put the tire on, tightened up the, uh, the lugs. And, um, and we were on our way that at that point, it was like, you know, uh, the analogy I, I like to use is that whenever you have to take a crap real bad, but you're like five miles from the house, you got to take one, but your body knows, you know, like it can't, it can't let go yet. And you're good until maybe you get about a block or, or you know, or two away. And then your, your sphincter knows what's going on. So now you're starting to get those labor pains. You know, your toes are cur- curling up in the floorboard because you're going to drop this deuce right away. And um, just let go. And when I got to the to the ER and I was sitting um, in the chair, you know, waiting to be evaluated, I just felt my body just. It was like at that point, I'm like, man, I I, I might have waited too long, you know, to go. Like I was jacked up. I was like somewhere in the low to mid 80s for my uh, for my you know O2 saturation. And it still didn't really dawn on me. Like I knew that I was sick at this point, obviously, but it didn't dawn on me on how bad I was until um, one of our uh, EMS captains, one of my mentors, actually, the captain stopped by and seeing the look on his face as he was looking at me, I was like, oh, well, I'm fucked up, you know? And, um, and I was just, the fever that I had for the week before that it finally broke, um, it came back. Um, and I was just, uh, you know, they were trying to be very aggressive with, with my airway and stuff. Uh, fortunately I didn't have to get intubated, but you know, I was, I was pretty close to, to, to get, you know, uh, being tubes because I just wasn't getting any better. And I just deteriorated to such a point where, you know, it was pretty bad, you know, and I guess there was a lot of people that were concerned about me by that point I was lucid. So I didn't really, you know, know, but the whole time thinking, for real, you know, looking down going, this is how it ends. You know, I'm thinking of some, you know, ladder 49 backdraft, you know, or something epic. The dang uh, China virus got me, you know, I was like, man, ain't that some stuff. That was, um, that was surreal. I was out in the hospital for, for a week. Uh, Once I got the plasma, at least the plasma worked well for me. That in the, um, uh, I don't know, I was on severe. What's that? The remdesivir. Reg Ron or whatever it uh, I, I can't I couldn't pronounce it even if I was um, you know if I had the full memory you know of it so <laughs> usually I just make up my own words you know uh, but uh, yeah that I was on antiviral anti uh, antibiotic um, and they gave me this other stuff that that helped but it was the plasma that that really. I would say within 12 hours, it was, um, you know, I wasn't getting worse. And I was actually like, I was actually able to sit up in the hospital bed without, you know, having like a bronchospasm or something. So it was, uh, you know, um, I don't know, I guess the cool part about it was, is I got used to peeing in a bottle, 
you know, which was really awesome because, you know, I never realized that being over 40 and having a, you know, a over 40 bladder, you know, that I get up a couple times in the middle of the night. At this point, I couldn't get up to go to the bathroom because uh, it was just, it would wipe me out completely. So, but they give you a little bottle of beer and I was like, man, this is epic. Do you have uh, Martha bring you a bottle? Um, no, I mean, she wasn't allowed to, to, to see me. So it's- No, um, I'm talking about now that you've fallen in love no. with- Oh yeah, I've pissed twice since we've been talking. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know, you and I have shared quite a few stories. Most firefighters do share the good, the bad, and the ugly, and maybe add in some dark humor to help process the, the memories. I've been interviewing quite a few uh, fire service people over the last couple of weeks, and uh, some of them are you know, retired chief officers or fire officers. It was interesting how, how open they were, because these guys were the salty, you know, if you can't suck it up, you don't belong here. Kind of, mm -hmm. you know, there, that is, that was my introduction uh, to coping with trauma in the fire service was mm -hmm. when I, when I asked some older guys about like, you know, how they process through some of this stuff, I got the man, if you're already worrying about this stuff now, you've picked the wrong career, buddy. Mm -hmm. uh, you might want to think about working at Home Depot or something. You know, basically just shut up. I didn't talk about that stuff anymore. Like, no, man, I'm tough. I'm, I'm tougher than you. Yeah. <laughs> 20 plus years of shoving that shit down. Mm -hmm. You know, I ended up, you know, with the death of my brother, the death of my mother, running cold, like a lot of, a lot of that stuff came back with a force. And I sought out assistance. There's some really good assistance out there these days, but you know, you and I have had this conversation before and it's different for everybody. Some people mm -hmm. process the stuff really, really quite naturally, you know, um, it's like maybe you just have the, the tools. I don't know if it's so much about the tools or it's so much about life experience. Um, what turns out with the talk with this topic and the lead in with my my uh, Corona, you know, or COVID experience was, is that I deduced that the reason why I got so sick was because I had basically depleted myself uh, or depleted my immune system prior to being exposed to, to the virus. So who knows if I was sleeping well every night, you know, eating right, uh, staying adequately hydrated, maybe I, maybe I still get sick, but I don't get within a couple of inches of, of my life, you know, of, of losing it. And I think the same could be said for um, mental health because it's, you know, I think our minds are just like our immune systems in the sense that some are, you know, uh, maybe a little bit more equipped than others to sustain a, a heavy, you know, load, you know, so to speak. But that doesn't mean that there isn't any one of us that isn't beyond being susceptible to reliving those traumas and, and suffering from depression or, or, ha you know, having to having those flashbacks come back so much to where it consumes them. And then that's all they could think about. And then they end up, you know, you know, taking their own lives. It's a fact in it, um, that's first responders taking their own lives is um, the death total exceed 
the you know traditional line of duty deaths that uh, that we've been accustomed to. I mean, it's got its own separate category. The state has actually you know um, recognized it. So built into the state statute, when you go through minimum standards in the state of Florida, four hours have to be dedicated towards mental health. So the the problem is real, and I think that we are all there's not a single person that's out there that's in the fire service that's you know that's a first responder that isn't beyond uh, isn't beyond being susceptible to you know the, those demons that lurk up you know at night. Those preloading factors are is um, are you getting enough sleep? Are you having marital problems at home? Did somebody did a love member? Uh, you know, uh, brother, mother, father, you know, family member, did they lose their life? These are all things that they, they chip away at the, at the armor, if you will. And I, and I really think that there's all of those components, not one thing, it's just a, it's just a bunch of things. When I had two years on the job, we had six, um, in two, yeah, two years on the job, just over two years. And in two shifts, we had six, six patients die as a result of motorcycle accidents and three separate incidents. I mean, and it wasn't like pretty deaths either, you know, it's motorcycles. So it was one of them, you know, um, when we got back to the station, you know, stomping my boots on the, uh, on the apparatus bay, be, you know, try, try to get out the, the, the moisture because it was a, you know, um, pre-dawn, you know, call. And I see these specs and it was this, uh, you know, 16 year olds, uh, it was his brain matter that was coming off of my boots. In the moment, it was just like, oh, that's disgusting. That visual, that's never escaped me. Now, I don't relive it or anything like that other than when I'm telling the, the story. But imagine six fatalities that were pretty significant early on in my career, but I'm, I'm healthy up, up here. I'm still getting, you know, um, I'm young, I'm getting enough sleep. You know, I don't have any other issues or anything like that that would be chinking at the armor. But it's, you know, you have somebody that's, you know, they're, they're redlining as it is. And now you, you know, expose them or they have to experience something like that. Maybe that's the breaking point. It's definitely something that's butching up and uh, just, just deal with it is not the, it hasn't, it hasn't bode well for us so far. And we're seeing the evidence, you know, of that because it's either that or become uh, abusive in your relationships, abusing, you know, drugs or alcohol or something like that to, to find a, a, an outlet, you know? So it's uh, whatever, what, you know, the advice before, and it's it, it no any better because chances are that's what they were told when they came on the job 20 or 30 years before that. And these were the guys that you go that far back. These are all wartime people, you know, that um, experiences that were probably haunted by it, but nobody's ever gonna admit that weakness. As it comes to the mental health awareness, the, the, the one issue that I have with it is, is there's a fine line between being aware and predisposing somebody. Because if you think about every conversation that you had with somebody and fire, or EMT, paramedic school, the question inevitably comes up, how do you deal with all the stuff that you see, right? And these are from your instructors, you know, um, or you overhear somebody asking somebody that's senior and they almost always say the same thing. Eh, you kind of get used to it, unless it's a kid. And right there, we've just predisposed somebody to say that, you know what, anybody else's life is, uh, you know, it, it's not as much as it is a child. And we've just planted the seed to where I don't have to feel anything, but if it's a kid, I should feel something. Because if I don't, maybe there's something wrong with me. And I don't mean to imply that 
that it's not tragic and that we shouldn't feel anything. I just think that it's our words matter and we have to be very conscious of the uh, unintended consequences of saying something like that, you know? And for me, I don't value one life over the other, you know? It's um, because I've heard the howls, you know, uh, and the screams from when the 90 year old uh, abuelo or abuela, uh, abuela, the grandmother or grandfather, pass away from the family because they were loved and that pain is still there whether it was expected or not there's no differentiation between me between those howls and those screams between that person and the uh, i think the youngest uh you know uh fatality ever had was a seven day old you know uh that was uh the full rest you know, we worked in the doorway of this house screams are still there you know there's no differentiation so i uh, i've really felt that's I've been able to just put that uh, to the side, but I also know what my tell, what the tells are, like what my my weaknesses are. I don't want to know the story, you know, and I don't want to look them in the eyes. I could check pupils without looking at looking at somebody in the eyes, because that's just that's when it hurts. You know, I could block out everything else. I always hated going back to the scene after like a significant trauma, and then finding out. Uh, that uh, this father was taking his kid home from the first day of football practice, and they were blindsided. You know, they were t-boned by a uh, by a motorcycle, popping a wheelie, you know, at like 80 miles an hour, and stuff. It was like I didn't want to know that. I just knew that I had a kid that had a Glasgow three, and we had to trauma alert him and fly him to the uh, uh, to the trauma center, and then we went back to the scene uh, to pick up the motorcycle driver because the area units were busy, and you know, like looking with a flashlight, looking for his arm because it you know came off and stuff. I was all right with all of that. I wasn't all right with hearing the story about the dad and uh, picking up, you know, um, taking his son, because I imagine that conversation, you know, going on and then bam. No, I, I would rather never have to deal with that again. I think that when you're task focused on whatever it is, if it's an entrapment, if it's pulling somebody out of a fire, if it's working an arrest, or working a pulmonary edema, focus on the task, you treat the patient with respect, you're treating them, you're talking to them, but you're not engaging at an emotional level. Once that happens, like I, I, I have the utmost respect, especially now with the, with the COVID for nurses because of, they're not just with the patients for, for 15 minutes, you know, they can be with them for days and there's a, there's a connection that's built into it. And that, like, I know I'm not equipped for that. You know, um, I, I would find another job. You know, this, with what we do, I feel comfortable with it, but I also know that uh, a certain sequence of, a, you know, of, um, of events away from being just susceptible to being like, I can't get past this. The day that I found out, the moment that I found out my mother had passed away, I was on my way to a, a townhouse fire. You know, I get a picture and uh, I get, uh, you know, with the, with the words underneath uh, from, my, from my sister, I think mom's dead. And meanwhile, you know, attention, you know, uh, a townhouse fire and stuff. And there's no time to process anything, you know. Um, and that was that was surreal. But that's the reality of the job. Like there's some things that it's the cost of doing business when it comes time to work. But that processing, uh, thankfully, I was in a good place considering, you know, um, the passing of my mother. You mentioned the howls. Is it's one of the things that I mentioned in a in a previous mm -hmm. interview that has stayed with me mm -hmm. is that pain of the people that are left. Mm -hmm. 
know, the pain that they're experiencing losing that loved one, whether it's their child, their brother, sister, parent, grandparent, when they experience that loss, that immediate primal reaction, it's an unmistakable sound. Yeah, absolutely. And it's, um, I think it's one of the few, um, just by like, there, there is no other description other than how, because once you've heard it, you can't unhear it. And anybody that's ever, you know, been exposed to it knows exactly what it sounds like, the way that it rings in your ears and the way that it, you know, makes the hairs on the back of your neck stand up or, you know, the, when you get the goosebumps as it's happening, you know, that dark humor, you know, is just like with your crew. And if you're working the arrest, you're working, you're like, am I going to tell them to shut up? You know, I'm trying to concentrate here, you know, and it's like a, you know, completely inappropriate, not loud enough to say anything like that, but it's also a defense mechanism, you know, because it's like, I'm kind of serious, <laughs> you know, but I don't expect anybody to, to do it, nor would I, but it's just, it's that, it's, uh, it's uh, that powerful, you know, uh, to where you just want it to stop. And there's, and I found that there's differences too with it because, you um, there's something that's elicited when that howls from the gut. It's unmistakable because I've been on scenes where, you know, it was almost like it was a contest to see who mourned the passing of the grandfather more than the other. And you hear them screaming and stuff like that. And it's theatrics. And it's like that to me, I, I inside, I, you know, I get angry because it's like, big as fuck right now, you know, like, how dare you type thing. But that just, you know, keep it in and, you know, whatnots because, there's nobody else that could understand that, though, because if I said that to anybody else, you know, outside of the fire service or, or, or the profession that hasn't experienced it, they'd be like, well, who are you to judge how somebody feels something? And it's like, because when you hear for real, you know that it's either is or it isn't. It's hard to quant you know, quantify to somebody that, that doesn't know. Yeah. It's, it's like a, a guttural anguish. You know, you being down there in Miami, you might be able to get the uh, University of Miami Medical Center there to do, you know, commission a study. They've actually been, they've gotten all kinds of grants for a, a ton of different studies. There was a, uh, and uh, like mostly for the cancer stuff, like we had a, uh, you know, shit in a stick and uh, you get a t-shirt, you know, type thing, because they're checking for a colio uh, rectal, you know, cancer. So, um, you know, I took part in that. You know, so there was that. They've done, you know, females um, uh, in the fire service. They've uh, also explored um, African Americans. You know, like these separate studies. And basically, you know, it's they're trying to get a, you know, a, a snapshot. The people from the beginning of their careers in departments who, you know, middle or towards the end or that have retired. Uh, they've got one going on right now for um, for the COVID. So I'm taking the uh, taking a course at uh, instructor course to become an instructor one. So it was the uh, course delivery, right? So knowing your audience, right? Uh, I'm in a in our headquarters in the classroom uh, that we had there before training center was built, and I have nine firefighters, civilian instructor, uh, instructor, and then there was another civilian that was in the class. So the beginning part of this class was, you know, introductions, hobbies, and um, what you're doing and where do you see yourself five years from now? So being the next to last person 
chosen to make my introduction, I, um, you know, I said, yeah, yeah, my name's Mike Getter, uh, I'm a lieutenant, been on the job for X amount of uh, years. Uh, my hobbies, uh, other than this job, because I'm a fire geek, you know, I, uh, everything fire service, even on my days off, but I also like to masturbate as a hobby. And in five years, I hope to be the reigning, um, you know, uh, North American masturbation champion of, uh, you know, whatever, you know, and everybody just erupts into the class, right? And then, um, again, not knowing my audience, because the next person that I have to introduce is the female civilian that's in the, um, that's next. So I go, and now I'd like to introduce Miss So-and-so. So she stands up and, you know, everybody's still laughing, wiping away the tears because, I mean, it's funny, fireman human. And, and it was until it wasn't because she said, I'm so-and-so, I'm a God-fearing woman, I love my Lord, and, um, I, and you, I am, I am um, absolutely offended by what you just said. And then everybody was like, oh. that was my last day in that class. And so, you know, um, because I, you know, I, of course, I was already thinking of the apology in my, in my head and was going to do it when the instructor told me at the break, hey man, you need to talk, you need to apologize to her, you know, pretty upset. And I was like, oh gosh, you know, that moment of humility, that moment of really putting your foot in your mouth, which I have a tendency to do. And I wasn't trying to offend, you know, anybody. I was just using my my humor and especially when I'm nervous I say some weird off the wall shit you know and and it like backfired I mean it could have went really bad because this is a fire department employee you know and it's a you know and I'm talking about masturbating you know and it was like oh. you know uh I'm remembering a lieutenant when I was in Fort Lewis that said you know you have a time and a place you know and I hated that guy you know because he was a huge guy but I hear his voice all the time, though, because he's like, you know, I'm in a place. I'm like, oh, all right. You know, I got to take that one on the, on the chin. You know, I apologize. And, you know, she was very gracious and stuff like that. But felt, you know, uh, you know, felt the need to let me know that, uh, you know, that was completely inappropriate and whatnot. And I was like, all right. Yeah, I, I, I get it. Yes, I understood, you know, inside, you know, being uh, being a child. I already know that I'm wrong. Why are you going to tell me that I'm wrong? <laughs> <laughs> What's one of your best memories in the fire service? Probably my fourth shift on the job. Get the uh, ride and tailboard, you know, on a tanker unit, um, but just a thousand or uh, two thousand gallon uh, engine, and uh, which we call tankers. Uh, we dispatch to a to a house fire, and um, we show up and smoke is just pouring out of the eaves, you know. And it's like we got a job. And, uh, and I'm with a badass crew. These guys all got over 20 years. I mean, this, they just ooze firemen, you know, but they're very, um, they're very professional. They're very solid. They, there's no rashes with it. They're just very like, there was a couple of calls. They don't have to say anything to, to each other. They just, they're, they're all on point. So it, it felt good to be a part of this crew, show up, pushing out. And as I get out of the, um, get out of the truck there was a mom that was holding her toddler and uh she was like look baby you know the um the, the fireman's going to go put out the that the, the fireman's people's home he's going to save their home you know and that was like like i still get the goosebumps you know um 
to it. And it was, and that might not have been exactly what she said, but it was just like the, the image of, you know, look, look at the fireman going to do his, you know, do their job. Uh, Edward uh, Kroger, you know, it, you know, I have no ambition in this life, and that is to be a fireman. That moment resonated, you know, for it. Um, probably, was it, was it the proudest moment or, because that was the coolest moment. Uh, just your best memory. Yeah, best memory. Okay, sorry. Um, yeah, that was probably, that's probably one of my, one of the best, you know, memories. Um, you know, the, the others are seeing the guys that I've worked with get promoted. And uh, the guys that were my rookies that are now chiefs, that those are also the best memories because they, good people, you know, receptive to, to learning, humoring my, you know, uh, my humor and, and being receptive to the things that I wanted to share with them, um, as well as their, you know, their guidance to, to me. I've been yelled at by a couple of times by my firefighters, like, what the hell are you thinking? So seeing them um, being successful and not just in the professional capacity, but in the personal you know, uh, capacity as well. Like they're just, that's awesome. It's like reassurance. Like I'm a proud papa, you know, when I, when I see them, um, even if I have to call them sir, you know, which I do, I do gladly, but to, to much to their, their dismay. Cause uh, you know, I've got several guys. I'm like, look, you know, you're, cause once somebody outranks me just because of the way that I am, and I don't care if they were my rookie or not, their first name is now chief, whether it's on or off duty. And that's more as a measure of, of respect, but it's also because I don't ever want there to be the lines that, that, that are blurred in the sense that if they're going to have to hold me accountable, they're, they're holding Captain Getter accountable. They're not holding Mike Getter uh, accountable. And if they need to be the chief, you know, I don't want them, I don't want our friendship to be an impediment to it. So I kind of like just put up that line. Still my friend. I'll still, you know, hang out with them and stuff. It's just that I'm not going to call them by their first name. You know, I'm going to be calling them by their title. You know, and it's more so a reminder for myself. So I don't take advantage of that relationship where I don't say, well, I remember when you were a rookie, you know, because to me that undermines their, you know, their authority, especially when you do it in front of other people. You know, but again, that's that's something that's personal for me, guys that I work with. My first name is Mike. You know, uh, I don't expect or demand to be called captain unless the person that's junior is a, is a douchebag. Then I'll, you know, it's uh, it's either sir or captain. Uh, but other than that, it's like oh, Mike, man. So it says on my birth certificate. So there's that kind of like that dichotomy with that. I'd probably call you prickfoot bastard, but not to your face. You know, <laughs> is there any anything that uh, you wanted to talk about in particular? Gosh, you know, it's um, I had a. A running mental list of things that uh, that I that I wanted to speak about um, since the last time we spoke, and then being tasked with teaching leadership and you know for the officer development program, you know to where like it would all kind of like tie in because it was just you know reinvigorating to get um, or or you know to be reengaged into consciously talking about you know um, into leadership because it's you know a lot of the guys that I work with they you know. I think they recognize the leadership traits without me having to, I don't preach about the stuff. I just do. And then what they ask, then I tell them, but I don't say, you know, this is for a while. I think I was getting so consumed and reading everything about it, that I wanted to share it, but it, I wasn't, I didn't realize that it was, it wasn't coming across as me sharing it. It was me almost like pontificating. And that was not my intention, you know, at, at all. It was just that, Hey, you know, um, 
this is what I read and this is the reason why somebody does this or whatnot. And, you know, a good leadership thing that, that you could do in my mind, I'm just, it's a, it's a part of the conversation to the, to the crew and they're being polite going, Oh yeah. Yeah. Meanwhile, they're like, oh, this guy's on it again. Do you ever talk? <laughs> you right. know, um, it's kind of like somebody that does CrossFit, you know, how do you know that they, somebody does CrossFit because they don't shut up about it. I was that guy because I was doing CrossFit for a while and it was a great program, but it was also getting annoying because I'm like, oh, what box do you go to? You know, how about the wall? Yeah. yeah, there's that joke, the, the only, what are the rules for Fight Club? Never talk uh, about Fight Club. Yeah. But, you know, the rule for CrossFit is you always talk about CrossFit. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Yeah, I think the, you know what, the one thing that I, that I would, uh, I guess, talk about is, is that in, in a leadership capacity, if you ever, I think it's very important, and I've learned this the, the easy and hard way, uh, in the sense that if somebody that is, you know, um, that is a subordinate somewhere in the chain of command, or even if it's somebody that's a, a, a superior in the chain of command, if they ever make a decision instead of shooting first and, you know, talking crap because that's what we do or being aggressive with them and asking what their problem is, you know, or dishing out, a, you know, discipline, either way, up and down the chain of command of holding them accountable before you attach yourself to that position or that tactic is to, to dial it back and, and talk to the person first. It's like confronting a rumor. Hey, I heard this. Is it true or is it not? If it's true, can you explain to me what your rationale is? And I, I, I just, I can't, you know, emphasize how important that is because that all ties in with the communication. It ties in with respect and, and, and plenty of other positive attributes because it was my, our fire chief, you know, cut me out from under my knees. You know, I had two solid instructors. And because they didn't have enough time on our department to, to be considered an instructor, they were immediately removed in the middle of a class that's going on where the bonds have already been, have been made with the recruits. These two were actually were doing a stellar job with it. They weren't tasked with providing, you know, they were never the lead on a particular subject. They were adjuncts. The only thing, you know, that they were just in charge of a squad. Nobody bothered asking myself or my chain of command what their role was. It, it was just, oh, you got somebody that's only, you know, um, the one instructor I had, she had two, almost three years on our, you know, in our department. She had a total of five and a half years in the fire service. Not a lot to qualify as an instructor, not in the state's eyes to be certified as an instructor one. She added something to the program and gelled with the other uh, cadre immediately. The other um, instructor, the guy had over 10 years with another department, had two years with us. The guy was a battalion captain for another department. The guy was excellent, you know, as well. But since he only had two years on our department, what qualifies this guy to being an instructor? And it's like, where does it say that we can't? Because there's nothing in our policies and procedures that says that that um, outlines what it takes for you know somebody to come over to the um, to be a recruit training instructor. Uh, as a matter of fact, the way that I run it is is it's it's all it's it's all recruitment. You know, it's uh, your reputation precedes you, 
And if you're known as a solid person, you're going, you know, you're going to be sought after to come over. But the caveat to that is, is that the instructors are on a, they're on a 40 hour work week. None of them put in less than 60 hours. Those 20 hours are on their own dime. They don't get compensated for it. They come in on the weekends and they provide extra instruction. And that takes a certain level of um, commitment and passion to the program to be able to, to pull it off and not just you know show up, but to be enthusiastic, to be passionate about it. Basically, somebody talked to the fire chief, asked a question, and he, uh, he said, oh no, that can't happen. You know, and then, so they were gone. In the middle of a class, when we were four or five weeks into a 14 week program, and now what am I supposed to do? Because it ain't like people are knocking down the doors to become uh, an instructor because one, first and foremost, a lot of, uh, a lot of their spouses um, are either working from home or they have kids and the schools hadn't opened up yet, you know, so they're having to provide that, you know, that home schooling. The other part of it too is, is it's a grind. You know, it used to be that it was, you know, you kind of hide out, you could study for a promotional exam. Now I tell people straight up, if you're here to get the, the, the study, this ain't the place for you. You know, it's um, because we expect 110%, 100% of the time and everybody gets it. And the future of our department depends on it. And that's not like a, um, you know, like I'm standing on a pedestal trying to, to preach that. No, it, this is just, uh, I, I'm deeply committed and passionate to leaving this place better than I found it. And I think that when you have the rights instructors and you have the, the adequate resources to support it, we're going to produce, and we have been producing a great product, you know, comparatively speaking. So, you know, for many years, you know, past, not that it was bad, but it's just that there's a measurable improvement and just to be cut down. It's like, why would you do that? I mean, as every right to, it's the fire chief, but they say goes, but I think as a leader, it's definitely com compromised my opinion, you know, of them in the sense that that ain't right. You know, you, you just, because you didn't, you didn't undermine me, you undermined your assistant chief of operations who signed off on it. You know, you undermined your training division chief, not to mention me, like I'm just, I'm cannon fodder at that point. Um, but it just, what does that say about it? You know, there was no discussion with it, you know, other than a text message, what the fuck's up with this? Probably didn't go down like that, but that was the gist of it, as I understand it. I was encouraged to have a, you know, have a sit down with the, uh, you know, with the fire chief to, to get, you know, his, uh, to practice what I preach, to find out what the rationale was, you know, or maybe if I'm even hearing the story right. But what I do know so far is, is that I had two solid instructors. Now I don't. And it was a result of him saying, you know, no, that can't happen. You know, like the sequence of events, they, they line up. There's nothing I'm going to say that's going to, uh, to change his mind. You know, now he's a good guy, our, our fire chief. So I don't want to make it seem like he's he's an asshole, even though that to me, that was an asshole move. But it's just one of those things where, okay, I have to sit down with the fire chief and say, chief, I'm very disappointed in you. How is that going to go? Well, is that the route that you'd want to take? Because, like, and I'm just playing devil's advocate here. If you had a subordinate come to you Mm -hmm. And you had made a decision to do something and you made that decision based on just a piece of the information, mm -hmm. not the whole, right? So you made a decision, made yourself look foolish mm -hmm. and nobody has clued you in to how foolish you look. Mm -hmm. Now you have a subordinate coming, wants you to undo what you've done. Mm -hmm. 
what would be the most effective way for them to get you to change what you've done to reverse it? Or what's a surefire way to get you to say, uh, you know what? You don't know what went into my decision-making process. Get out of my face. Mm -hmm. You know, who are you to talk to me that way? That's my, if we think through it, there has to be a productive way for you to go and speak to the fire chief and, and possibly get him to undo what he did. Today, as a matter of fact, um, you know, this morning, I had that internal, you know, dilemma. And it's, um, I'm not, like, the, the, the course of that conversation wouldn't be to undo that, that decision. Because that decision's already been made, those personnel are already back. I think it would, you know, I, I was able to get two other people to come in that, um, that hopefully will be, it'll minimize any disruption, you know, to it. Um, I do have the belief in them that they'll be able to uh, carry it out because the rest of the cadre are going to rally around and they're going to provide that support because they're good like that. You know, the, the purpose of the conversation wouldn't be to, you know, wouldn't be to change the mind, but just because um, I spoke Prevent it with, from happening again. Yeah, my, my, uh, I spoke with my chief about it. Um, you know, later on in the day, and I was like, you know, this is what I'm thinking, um, because I, I want them to understand that this wasn't, this wasn't an arbitrary de decision. Every potential angle that he can come up with, we had already considered that, you know, and, and this, this was the, this was the reason why we chose this course of action, because at the end of the day, we had to add two instructors pretty much at the last minute, because who would have thought Right, that in the middle of a global pandemic where we have to be concerned with wearing masks and social distancing, that the the department would hire 40 recruits that have to occupy the same space and be on the tra uh, the training grounds at the same time. Like, who makes that decision? You know, so that is the mat that that is the the mentality that I'm going up against. I believe that the fire chief would be very receptive to to what you know to what it is that I have to say for the understanding okay because usually you know my issues in the past with the um with the higher ranking and you know like divisions and, and up is is I know you Mike um you know I know what you're about you know but I just had to make you know whatever decision that uh, that it was and it's I am definitely not infallible and I don't think that I am you know that every decision that I make is the is the most correct one and I leave myself open for for criticism but at the same time, I also know that I've got a I, I've got a temper that I keep suppressed a lot, and the wrong comments at the wrong time, and I have no filter and I have no fear of um, of consequence. It doesn't matter who it is. I told one of you know our assistant chiefs that. Um, you know, in a, in a meeting related to this, after everything that had happened, I was like, I, 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 please, you know, chief, if you could just, I know this is going to come across really bad and, and almost confrontational, but this is how I feel. And, and, and this is what I'm, what I'm, you know, prepared to do is, is that please tell the fire chief and the deputy fire chief to not tell me that they appreciate everything that I and my instructors do, because I'm going to lose my shit. And I'm gonna and I'm gonna be deeply offended because clearly they don't know what we do. And I find it insulting that they would even say that when they make decisions that undermine our
our capacity to, to you know, um, execute our mission. You know, and it's like, and I'm getting like heated as I'm saying that. Now I'm being respectful, even though I'm using the same, you know, language, but I'm not passionate about it. So it's like I said, I, I don't want to put myself in that position to where I disrespect the rank, let alone the the person, but it's the rank. Like I have too much respect for the rank structure to just blatantly disregard, you know, and, and have a visceral response to something as opposed to remaining clinical, you know, to where like, these are the reasons why I disagree with, with it, um, with your decision. And these are the reasons why we made the decisions that we did make on our end. Because if I get like a snide comment, you know, now, now it's emotional. Now I'm going to, now I'm going to throw in that, uh, you know, I'm going to throw in that one zinger. That'll be my, my undoing. Fortunately, I pay union dues. So, you know, I'm not really that scared. And I'm three years from the drop. To me, it's, it's, it's worth, the, it would be worth the fight, but it's not worth, you know, putting myself in a position to do it because I'm too, I'm too afraid of my, my, uh, my temper. You know, that's something that I've realized in the last few years about myself, why I don't pursue certain things, because I know that I'm, I'm a, I'm a millisecond away from just, you know, snapping, especially when it's, especially when it affects my people very protective of, of it, you know, of them. And, you know, and especially if it's disrespectful, you know, to them or to myself, I haven't mastered that yet. That's one of my, still one of my Achilles is that temper. But you're absolutely right as far as what are the alternatives? Absolutely. Interesting. Yeah, yeah, it's, uh, but ultimately it's, you know, as a leader, I think it's incumbent upon us, you know, if you have somebody that, that, that says something that, that whose behavior is uncharacteristic for who they are, you know, instead of just trying to snap them out and enact discipline, hit the pause button, wait a minute, let's, let's, let's dial it back. Just like the, what turning the tables around, you know, in this case, you know, what you were saying, why did you make this decision? What was the thought process behind it? it the same could be applied, you know, in, in any capacity. It, it's all part, again, communication and respect. Yeah, it's funny. And you've traveled probably more, well, I know you've traveled more than I have with, you know, with the fire service and interacted with quite a few other department personnel, you know, uh, personnel from other departments. And it's industry-wide in the fire service. Mm -hmm. There, there seems to be that same complaint that I wonder if it's consistent throughout the fire service's history, that contempt from the people out there on the trucks fighting fire, putting mm -hmm. their bodies in harm's way. And they're like, we, we lack leadership. The people upstairs, they don't get it. They they're failing as leaders and yeah. it's not every department, but it's consistent enough that you kind of wonder what's going on. I, I well, I, I think that, uh, you know, I, I, for us, you know, battalion chiefs, they have three bugles, right. And they're mostly grounded. When you get to division chief, you know, you have the fourth bugle, then it goes up. And I used to, and I still joke around with the guys. I don't know what it is about that fourth bugle, but it, it turns into a crown. You know, and now His Majesty, you know, is uh, is so I can't remember the, the, the term, it, you know, with it, but it, they're so far removed from us common folk that uh, you know, we couldn't possibly understand what goes on at their level. And they almost have this 
you know, uh, monarch rule that how dare you question the king, you know, uh, for any of the decisions they make. And it's like, they don't realize that they're not communicating and, oh, well, well I'm too busy, you know, because I'm dealing with all this other stuff. If, if you're too busy to communicate your, your leader's intent, then you're either a poor time management, uh, you know, time management, or you just suck. Chances are you probably sucked as a follower, right? Because that was one of the lines too that we um, that we had from that initial, you know, leadership initiative thing was, is, you know, that uh, the key to good, you know, to uh, to good leadership is being a, a good followership. You know, the the flip side to that is is that if you if we were to look at the the department through their lens, at least for my department, the divisions. The, the lens that they see is, is that they don't see the attaboys as often as, as they see the complaints or they hear about the issues between this firefighter and this firefighter or this officer, you know, type thing. They only see negative stuff. So if they're constantly, you know, the only thing that they hear is, is, uh, is negative stuff, then they're going to have a negative impression of, of, of the whole unless they know the individual to where they could vouch for them, they'd be like, man, that doesn't seem right. Or maybe they get a pass or something like that because of that personal relationship where they know who that person is. If you're anonymous, forget it, you know, which the key to getting anything done, the key to anything on, you know, the first thing is, is relationships, right? So it's, uh, cause I was always like, man, if I have this initiative, how do I push it forward? Well, do I have a leadership? Is it going to cost any money? And is it going to involve any more work for the person that's approving? you know, uh, approving that decision. If I don't have that relationship, I'm not getting uh, into the door. You know, the, the division and as they go up, they're, you know, I get, they're inundated with with different scopes that maybe is beyond what, what we see the rank and file, but I had no idea. You know, the rank and file have no idea what their day is, is because they don't communicate it. To me, when I was in the military, we had a battalion commander um, that uh, nobody ever wanted to see the old man uh, in their uh, in their AO, their area of uh, operations, but he was judicious enough with his time and respected the troops enough to where he would stop by. Hey, Amen. How how are you guys doing? You know, just wanted to give you a little bit of uh, you know um, you know information of some stuff that's been going on. You know, and then uh, he would give us information of you know whether it's intelligence of you know, stuff going on. Um, at that time, there was a bunch of North Koreans, uh, you know, snuck into the country. There was a firefight with some uh, some police officers and stuff, and there was some other, you know, incident. So everybody was kind of like on edge. North Koreans, they were going to no longer abide by the armistice. So there was a lot of information that needed to be, you know, uh, communicated. And five minutes, you know, it was 10 if, uh, if anybody actually took them up on the offer of saying, hey, you guys, any questions? Bitches, grabs complaints. And the thing, no, is, is that you know, nobody wants to hear somebody whining and stuff. But if you're at that level, you need to be able to streamline or be able to differentiate between, okay, this guy's just whining uh, about the child. But if you have enough soldiers talking about, you know, not having cold weather boots, you're not going to know about that unless you talk to the, uh, um, the troops. That's the importance of it. So as a division chief, if you're responsible for a division of person, stopping by. Nobody really wants to see you. And if you say, hey, you know, just invite me for breakfast or for dinner, nobody's really going to, you have to force the issue. You have to invest the time. You might even have to do it outside your working hours. And it's like, and, and to me, that into itself speaks volumes.
If I know that the division gets off at four o'clock or if it gets off at five o'clock or whatnot, but shows up at seven to have dinner with us, hey, you guys mind if I have a child with you? It's not only we're going to say no, you know, and it's, hey, look, I'm not here to break your balls or anything like that. I'm just here to just share some information, you know, solicit your guys' needs and then be honest. Yeah, that we're not going to touch. This, you know what, that's a good point. That to me, that is the difference. That That is a leader as opposed to somebody who's just in charge of a bunch of people. I don't remember why I got on that tangent. I do think that that's important. Now that that tangent was directly related to my comment about what seems to be a void. You know, there's a, there's a leadership vacuum mm-hmm. in much of the fire service across the country. Yeah. Yep. And it's, uh, I think we're in a, we're at a point right now where if we were just to look at, you know, in Florida and in, in, in my department in particular, um, you know, I got hired in 98, 2003, I got promoted to Lieutenant and there was a big exodus of experience and, uh, and wisdom and stuff. And we had a lot of great firefighters up to fire, true fire officers that were just, I mean, legends. They retired and it was this big wave, right? But the next generation that came up behind them, it kind of just like, it fell on their shoulders. Now the numbers weren't as many, but it was enough to where, I mean, the shoulders were broad of these individuals. Get into 2007 to 2010, we have a lot of people left early, then you just had that next wave of big retirements and a lot, I mean, these were the shoulders that were sustaining the load and a lot of those guys left and now it fell onto the next generation. The shoulders aren't as broad, you know, good people, but there's a disparity in the numbers. Now we're coming up on the next big wave. Like I'm, I'm, I'm worried because of that, that vacuum. We don't have the experience that, uh, that we did as far as firefighting. So that's a life safety issue. What we have is a generation of parrots that they're just repeating the things that were told to them by these guys that were outgoing because they didn't know any better. But now like with, you know, the UL studies and all the things that we're learning through the, uh, as a result of like, you know, the, the fire by the behavior and whatnot, those are game changers, right? It's huge that we start really, you know, celebrating the the science of, hey, if this, this is the way that we've been doing things, but now there's science behind it, let's make sure that we own it because there's that aspect. And then there's the overall leadership of running the fire department in this new uh, era where we need to, we need to work out, you know, um, we need to, to really exercise our leader, leadership muscle to broaden those shoulders because the next wave, like I, my, I could leave in three years and there's a bunch of people that are with me between 2025 and 2030. That was around the period where we, we hired over a thousand people in the five year time, time frame. Imagine if, you know, a thousand people being that turnover rate, if the, you know, who's going to guide them at that point and the people that get promoted, who's going to guide them you know, and who's going to be able to say, Hey, you know what you're feeling right now? You know, this BS right now with the fire chiefs, they're not communicating stuff. You're going to be a fire chief one day, you know, or you're going to be a chief fire officer or division. Remember what bothers you now, because it's going to bother guys later on, but you're going to be in a capacity to change it. Don't forget where you came from. It's definitely, you know, um, agreed that there is a leadership vacuum, uh, systemically and hopefully through programs like this, where we the, the word gets out and we hear from different individuals and their experiences and the way that they would uh, address it, maybe resolve it, or at least advertise. We're not unique in, in those, those problems, but 
um, we could definitely have a collaborative in trying to you know, resolve them or at least mitigate them before they become a, a big issue. One of the biggest things with the leadership program in my last department was the mindset was to develop the, the people coming in, the people getting promoted, give them tools to, to build themselves into really good, strong, effective leaders. Because at some point, they're going to move into a position where they can affect change, change for the better. I, and I know that you've seen it where you take somebody that, you know, they're pretty jam up. They're, you know, they're a good fire officer, good lieutenant, good captain. They go to battalion chief and yeah, man, they're a good battalion chief. And then they take that next promotion and all of a sudden mm -hmm. it's almost like they forgot where they came from. Not all of them, but there are those ones that you're just like, what in the world just happened to you? Yeah. Then they move up and, and you just kind of wonder, like, is it that now you're in a position where you're feeling political pressure to behave this way? Mm -hmm. And you don't have the protection of the union, so you're you're job scared. Yeah. Well, that's that's the wrong kind of dynamic to have in the fire service. Well, yeah, that and the the, the misnomer that they want to try to run it like it's a Fortune 500 company. Right. You can't. Yeah, that doesn't mean that we shouldn't be wasteful, but you know we should take care of our of our stuff. But it's their ego or their mindset is more attached to the position, you know, instead of being comfortable with who they are there's a problem. I would like to see that no matter where you are, if you're not sir, as long as you're able to, you know, you don't have a, a, a light duty issue, you're still physically able to do that. If you're in a non-operations position, so even me as a training captain, right, I'm on a 40 hour, I'm not operations. It should be a requirement that at least once a month that I am rostered to go ride somewhere on a truck, right? I don't want to cut in anybody's overtime, you know, anything like that. I don't want to be that guy, but at the same time, it helps keep my identity with the few, um, to, you know, uh, to the operations guys. And it's not just as, as a training captain, it's as a, as a non-operations personnel. So if you're a division chief, even though you're an operations division chief, take your happy ass and ride on the truck. So, you know, and you could still identify with the needs of the guys and realize that sometimes if somebody makes a decision, that, that maybe you wouldn't normally make, but you have context, you know, to it and you don't lose the identity. You still have a pulse to it, um, to it and you can still remember what it's like to be there. Like guys in my department, no, I can't because I have so many, I have too many hours to where that's how we work and I'm, my hours of the deployments don't allow me to get called, but I would readily and happily do it because that's where I'm my happiest. I'm on the truck with the other individuals on there and we just have a blast. But it's also, it's a big thing is, is that that's real. That is the boots on the ground. That's, that's the one that's uh, making the name and preserving the name of our department, not the division who is, you know, pushing um, administrative stuff or dealing with uh, commissioners. And yet there's a political aspect to it. I, I understand that. I don't envy it. I wouldn't want that, uh, that, that job. They did. So they got to contend with it. I, I had a thought that some of the things that I thought of when I when I was a lieutenant was that we're operations, and this is my mindset as mm -hmm. a lieutenant. We're operations. We're the ones running the calls. We're the ones putting our bodies in harm's way. We're the ones not getting sleep. We're the ones 
that are, you know, experiencing the, the trauma that goes with the calls we're running. And then you get some stupid administrative task sent down in your email here, you need to, you need to do this. And it's like, well, wait a second, man, this is like a logistics thing. Aren't you logistics? And isn't logistics a support role? At what point does support tell operations what to do? And that was one of my biggest issues is like the administrative side of the fire department forgets their role mm -hmm. and starts to view the people on the front lines as not the asset that they are, mm -hmm. but a liability. Like we're paying them how much to sleep mm -hmm. at the station? We're paying them how much? We're, how much vacation do they get? Like, you know, we're supposed to be good stewards of the taxpayers' money. Mm -hmm. They're not putting themselves in the position of there's a reason that there is this much vacation. There is a reason that they're getting paid this much. Because if you don't, they're not going to be there. Yeah. They're mm -hmm. not going to survive a 25-year career. It's just not going to happen, you know? I mean, like there's a difference. There is a difference between a metropolitan fire department where every station is running, you know, 15 to 30 calls in a 24-hour period and a volunteer fire station that might get a call a month. And they've got, and they've got what, 20 to 50 personnel that go to that station and do their training or whatever. Like, I, I mean, I started off as a volunteer, but there's a big difference between, yeah, it's a great job. And you hear people like, if I, if I had to, I would do it for free. Well, would you, would you put yourself through this for free? I, I doubt it. Yeah. I think the caveat to that is that so long as you know, you have a uh, income coming in, you know, cause it's, uh, I remember, you know, uh, applying with, uh, you know, a bunch of different departments that, um, you know, comparatively speaking, didn't make a lot of, uh, a lot of money. I mean, I even consider going to forestry and forestry is, is you know, their, their pay is at, at least at the time, you know, was abysmal. And I'm like, these people have an incredible amount of responsibility and involves an incredible amount of risk you know, with, you know, a ridiculously few resources to, to do it. And, and, and it's like, I still would have done it because I'm a true believer and stuff. At this point right now, if they said, you know, um, hey, Mike, we can't pay anymore, but, you know, would you still consider, you know, showing up and volunteering your time? As much as I would, would love to be able to, daddy's still got bills to pay. You know, and have a successful, you know, uh, career, you know, somewhere else, you know, um, to where it would afford me to, you know, to, to, to volunteer my time. So it's, it's kind of like there's, um, you know, apples and oranges type of, you know, uh, type of, you know, analogy. Now, 25 years later, you know, you're going to see me retire up to Tennessee like everybody else uh, from Miami, you know, or North Carolina, and then volunteer some department. No. No, I, you know, um, if I could teach, you know, I would, but, you know, I'm, I'm probably going to be, you know, ready for the next phase of my life that, um, you know, involves travel amateur photography just to keep my mind engaged. Um, I don't want to do a marathon sprint and then just stop and not think about anything or not have anything to, to do, you know, which I think is uh, important for any retiree.
you know, I have an issue with our logistics, you know, uh, logistics division because they have a pretty red mural on the second floor of our, you know, logistics building that says supporting the mission, you know, and I'm always like, is it supporting or is it impeding the mission, you know, or supporting the mission. I don't see the asterisk on there that says, well, except for whatever it is that you need, right. you know, um, that, uh, that really, you know, chaps my ass. So it, ultimately though, it's like, I, I'm fully aware of any of my criticisms that I have towards a certain thing. I realize that maybe there's an angle that I don't know, but I blame the department and I blame those individuals for not encouraging, not making it a part of some level of orientation definitely is a part of your officer orientation is that you should sit with every single division that there is within your department sit with the dispatchers and see what they have to contend with um i was fortunate for my officer development i sat with the 911 call taker and i also sat with the fire dispatchers completely different perspective you know like oh my like that it's like that's the next level you know we also used to have it where the dispatchers would ride with us so they could see our perspective what a concept you know, but I think that interacting with the civilian personnel too, because I think that uniformed personnel have a tendency to treat the civilians with disdain. To me, that's unacceptable because we're all on the same team. Whether or not you have a badge or not, we have civilians that work in our department that I would take them six days to Sunday over a uniform guy, you know, because they're, you know, uh, you know, a recliner a commando. You know, it's like, you got this job. You swore that you would do anything. You'd give up your left nut to do this job. And the moment you get here, you just want to wear out uh, the, the seat part of the uh, the recliner and the handle. Are you kidding me? You know, what does your gear look like? You know, what do your tools look like? You know, do they have that same level of wear? I doubt it. You know, they probably still have a coated of uh, rust on it. No, you have civilians on the job that are d- deeply committed, get paid a fraction of what the firefighters do, and then have to deal with crap from the, the, the same, you know, uh, uh, people. And to me, that's that's unacceptable. And it's also disrespectful. But we don't understand where they're coming from. And a lot of times the requests that we have, or the demands we have, well, they don't understand overall, you know, definitely. Have you ever experienced that kind of sensation where, you know, the administrative side of the department tends to look at operations as more of a liability, a financial liability. Yeah, yeah, they they almost feel like a, on my on my email signature um, that I have on uh, for my for my county email, right? There's a quote by Jim Mattis that says, "A call from the field is an interruption of the daily routine. It is the reason for the daily routine." And I that that was in call side chaos. And I love that quote so much, it immediately went on there. And I'm very deliberate with it because it's a reminder to when I send the emails to the other staff or the administrative components, you know, that I, I'm hoping that they see it. And it's a reminder for the guys that are in operations that, yeah, if they call me, like my office phone goes directly to my cell 24-7. Now, I don't get a call at 3 o'clock in the morning for anything, but I'll get a call Saturday at 10 o'clock at night somebody asking me if they could uh, use one of the uh, towers uh, or one of the training, training props. And if, if I'm conscious and I answer it, I'm going to facilitate that request, you know, because why would I want to discourage that initiative? I don't give a fuck what time it is. You know, that's my job, you know, and it's not about, um, you know, whether or not I'm getting, you know, paid for. Oh, you, you know what I mean? It's uh, that's not what it's about because it's about broadening those shoulders for what's going on now. You know, afterwards. 
but yeah, I've, I've, I've dealt with that, uh, with that disdain, disdain. And, um, and I've had the conversation with somebody where I just kind of like, because anybody could have a bad day and I'll, all my tendencies to give somebody the benefit of the doubt, but when it's a recurrent thing, I will tell them, like I used to tell the, uh, the charge nurses at the, uh, at the ER when they would be, you know, upset that we were bringing them another patient, you know, and they're swamped or and stuff like that. It's like, I've got no choice. They said they wanted to go to this hospital. It's the closest facility. Guess where they're going? They're going right here. But when I would get the lip from them, from the charge nurses, or when I would get the lip from the civilian staff, I would just be like, you know, you can quit. You know, you're not forced to be here. Excuse me? Yeah, you you have options. You do not have to, you know, subject yourself to this, whatever it is that I'm putting you through right now. Because I just asked for a t-shirt that was in my stipend and you're breaking my balls on it. Clearly you're not happy and you're not getting the job satisfaction that you thought you were going to get. You can quit. You know, I'm letting you know you could transfer. You have options. But what I don't, you know, um, what, what is not an option is continuing to give me an attitude for you to do your job. Oh, well, no. And then that, then you get to, to backtracking and then, no, it, you know, and it's kind of like a check. Very rarely have I, has it gone beyond that, you know, unfortunately, because I don't know if I've mentioned, I, I have a temper, you know? <laughs> so I don't want to, you know, I, I don't, I, I don't want to lose my, you know, my cool on that because again, it, to the extent of my, my temper, it's, you know, it's, it's very visceral, you know, and um, I'm not violent, but just, you know, there's going to be a whole bunch of, uh, you know, uh, expletives. That's not, that's not who I want to be. That's not who I am, but it's there. So I'm aware of it. So I just, I, I'd rather not go through that, you know, or subject anybody to it. But usually that's just like enough. Oh, I'm sorry. Then that may be an issue that with them, they'll still treat the next person like crap, but at least they're not going to do it with me, you know? <laughs> Thank you very much for agreeing to come on again. Uh, I think we covered a lot of good, good topics. Uh, give people that aren't in the fire service a good perspective is, you know, kind of what drives our ambition to develop strong leadership in the people that are coming after us. And like I said, man, I, I always enjoy talking with you and this was uh, no exception. I really appreciate it, man. No, likewise, it's, uh, it's been great and it's been, uh, you know, it, it's a good uh, refreshment and, and it's the recollection of the conversations that we've had, the learning points, because it's, there's so much, you know, it's a perishable skill like anything else. So it's, it's great. And, um, and God knows like how much you've lost because of the COVID. Yeah. <laughs> All right, man. Love you, brother. <laughs> Love you too, man. Have a good night. All right, you as well. <laughs> Thank you for listening to this episode of From Embers to Excellence. Please visit hallenbockleadership.com for additional content. Dave's goal is to add value to as many people as possible. So if he can be of any assistance to you or someone you know, please connect with him via email or on one of his social media accounts linked on the homepage of his website. Remember, our failures don't define us unless we let them. And the only true measure of a leader is the success of their team.